On this week's episode of the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get to share my interview with M of Wizard Bikes in Vancouver Island, British Columbia, Canada. As you know, each week on the Shut Up and Build Bikes podcast, I get on the phone and I talk to somebody in the bike frame building world for an hour or several hours, typically longer lately, and I try to help them tell their story of their time getting into the sort of, you know, artisan handmade bike world and the ideas that they're interested in and the things that are important to them and their story. And this week, my guest is M from Wizard Bikes. They've been building bikes for two or three years, I believe they said, and making really cool stuff. A lot of hardtail mountain bikes and uh, some like dirt jumpers and various different bikes. And not only bicycle frames, but also forks and handlebars and some really cool bicycle accessories and at least one like wheel check tool and just a whole lot of cool stuff. Kind of a very prolific builder, I would say. And so it's cool to see all that stuff kind of flying out of the shop there and all the cool things that they're doing. And I was excited to kind of get the story. We also talked about paint. Uh, They've been doing some really cool like crackle finishes and fades and fun colors on the bikes and also laser cutting components and even decorative components for the frames. So uh, Emma is someone who is doing a lot of like taking advantage of some of the technology that's available to us with 3D printing and you know, laser cutting. And I think that stuff's especially cool. I really like highlighting that when I see builders who do that, because I think that's, it's just a whole new frontier of awesomeness. So anyway, here's the interview. Enjoy. Yeah. When I kind of like realized that frame building was a thing for like just, you know, people to do rather than this like uh, far off concept. Uh, I was working at a shop here in Victoria and I heard that one of the other shops had a frame jig and a mill in their basement. And it was just like, it kind of blew my mind that that was like a thing that like a bike shop had. I've been working in bike shops for like 10 years at that point, never really heard of that. So that's when I kind of like figured out that custom frames were a thing. And I started to look into it a bit myself. And then the thing that really got it going was uh, a good friend of mine, Jesse, who runs Wildwood Cycles now on the island. He uh, picked up a jig and started building bikes. And I actually have like one of his very first frames. And that was kind of my first custom bike. And then from there, it was like, you know, it's hard to measure up uh, any other bike versus a custom bike to yourself that you kind of had a hand in building. Mm-hmm. Um, and then fast forward down the line and I start, start working at a new shop here. And uh, one of my coworkers has a frame jig in the basement. And it was just like a, a homemade 80-20 jig, kind of like the basic ones that you see online that people make for themselves to make ones and twos. Mm-hmm. Uh, ordered myself a tube set. And then I sat on that tube set for almost a full year, kind of too nervous to start, not knowing where to start. It's like one thing to look at geo charts from mass manufactured bikes every day as a part of my job. But then coming to like picking geo for myself for know quote unquote the perfect one bike for mountain biking in victoria and i just like it was almost like too many options of which way i could go and then uh yeah i dug in on that first frame 
like two, three years ago. And then from there, I just started building bikes for my friends and having people kind of ask for one. That's kind of how I've built up my list to now. Yeah, that's great. There's several details of that telling, and maybe it's because you're in BC, but it reminded me eerily of when I had Paul Brody on the show and he talked about how he first started in like 1984 or whatever, that there just happened to be a, a frame jig in the one shop and that I, I think he said he said. Yeah. Anyway, it, I'm, I'm reminded of this striking similarity. but. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and I actually, when I lived in Vancouver, I I worked at that shop that Paul Brody started at. Hmm. Uh, worked in the exact location. Uh, yeah, it was pretty cool to to be in that location. This was before I, you know, considered building myself a frame, but it's kind of cool looking back now. Yeah, that's that's pretty special. And so you, uh, you, you know, you had been working in shops. You stumble into the, the the little bit of access to the frame fixture and you just took it from there because you're fascinated in this and you wanted to do it and it's a satisfying thing to do right yeah absolutely yeah it's cool to 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 make a bike and then just take it into the woods like from the bike shop right <laughs> right to the trails like uh, i ride to the trails here so it was like you know finish painting it build it ride it same day that's pretty awesome. uh pretty satisfying process uh so tell us some about your riding experience too you know uh working in shops and living in uh you know what i've never been to british columbia yet unfortunately but i understand it's some of the best mountain bike riding on the planet in in different parts of this uh, lovely province and uh you know you have access to a lot of excellent excellent trails and stuff uh, how does that inform the bikes that you get excited about riding and making and of course you know if you're going to design and build bikes from scratch you know you would hope that you have some good ideas in your head about the direction you want to take them how does that area that you live inform that yeah totally so where i live in victoria we're on like the south end of vancouver island and the trails in victoria proper are either kind of low angle technical cross-country trails or really steep but really slow because of how technical they are at the trails so that's why like on my my enduro style bikes you'll see like really pushing the reach numbers really pushing the head tube angle and like the bottom bracket drop just because like the trails are like really chunky really slow even though they're like can be pretty crazy steep like kind of like north shore you know dark side kind of stuff so it's like a playful bike isn't necessarily what you need for like the big riding around Victoria. Like on our illegal trail networks, we have one gap jump. <laughs> and if you include the illegal trails, maybe six gap, gap jumps in Victoria proper. So it's uh, that definitely informs like the big bike. And I definitely understand why like some people look at my bikes and be like, that's too long. That's too low. And if I live somewhere else or, you know, when I'm building for people that, aren't on the island kind of have to keep that in mind that not everywhere has like this exact riding style yeah and then for for my cross-country bike that i've been building for people and like kind of my bike packing bikes the cross-country riding here again isn't like crazy fast but it is really technical um so you can still get away with like the steeper seat tube angles and it doesn't have to be crazy slack to be fast here for the cross-country stuff 
Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I saw on your website and I think I've seen you make them maybe too. I remember seeing you make them, but you know, dirt jumpers and other, I mean, your, your riding background is more than like, I think probably in my mind's eye, when I think of what I know you for, it's probably, you know, like a sort of progressive hardtails, but that's not the extent of what you're building, right? You're doing a pretty wide variety of stuff. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I, I, I grew up riding BMX. Uh, BMX is the reason that I moved to British Columbia. Uh, I was living somewhere where there was snow on the ground for over six months of the year. So I wanted to, to move down pretty much as far south as I could get within Canada mm-hmm. uh, and ride skate parks all year round. Uh, so I come from a BMX background, and, but I have a hard time switching from riding like a you know progressive hardtail to riding a 20-inch BMX. So I started building those like 26-inch park bikes, yeah. which are pretty squirrely on dirt jumps. Like I've taken them to the dirt jumps here, and it's, it's pretty hard to get it around. But uh, at the skate park, it, it rips. Like it's super fun. It's, it feels as close to a BMX as I, I think you could get a 26-inch bike to feel. Um, it just like pops and spins the same way. Whereas like I've ridden production dirt jumpers before, and they just they're fun in the skate park, but it's not like a, it doesn't feel like a BMX. Yeah. And that's a factor of like, what, like wheelbase and head, head tube angle, or what do you feel are like some of the biggest, uh, drivers? Uh, of the bottom. Yeah, definitely head tube angle. Like the front center on the dirt jumps quite long. If you look at it, like compared to that, uh, park bike that I built myself, it's got like a 73 degree head tube angle and like a 30 offset fork on it right now. Uh, so it's super tucked in and then bottom bracket drop is another big thing. Like BMX is all run positive BMX drop, uh, bottom bracket drops, dirt jumpers are in the negatives. And then if you look at my bikes, they're a lot closer to zero BB drop. Yeah. And th- that, is that a factor just of the wheel diameter or is that like, if you measure from the ground up to the bottom bracket, it's still once taller than the other. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think so. Like, like on BMXs, like you want to run a positive bottom bracket drop or rise, I guess, so that you can run pegs and not, uh, you know, kind of teeter totter on the bottom bracket when you're doing grinds and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 And the first, the first 26 inch bike I did, I did like five or 10 miles of bottom bracket drop threw a set of pegs on it. And then it's just, you smash the, smash the bottom bracket every time you try and (laughs) slide down something. (laughs) doesn't work out super well at all that's so funny you know i think about the difference between bottom bracket drop and um bottom bracket height and yeah to me i usually just think in terms of bottom bracket height because that describes you know for instance if you're riding a fixed gear and you're cornering you can't you can't level the pedals in the corner and you don't want to clip your pedal or or whatever you know like the height that the that the axis of rotation of the bottom bracket, you know, that, that height above the ground for the kinds of bikes that I've tried to design and that I've mostly ridden, I'm just thinking about that height above the ground. And so, you know, the, the radius or the diameter of the wheel will, um, if you're looking at bottom bracket drop, that's a little bit more like of a frame centric design parameter, I'd like to think. And that, you know, regardless of the wheel diameter, like I usually just would design stuff in terms of the bottom bracket height. But yeah, like if you had pegs and you were grinding a rail, that's actually a use case 
for or like an argument for using a bottom bracket uh, drop that I had never even considered in my life. I was saying this when I talked to Tom LaMarche the other week, but like just, you know, like having designed and ridden a wider variety of bikes would just like give you a, a you know, a greater perspective about how to do stuff that would inform your judgment in ways that would help even with, you know, gravel bikes or hardtails or whatever. Totally. Yeah. 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 I, I, I'm not sure why I always default to, you know, the BB drop because it definitely is like more of a frame centric thing. And it's, uh, you know, started punching BB height into bike CAD more and more, but yeah, I think it's just from like working in the bike industry. It's like, that's what you see on a, on a geo chart. Yeah. Like if you try and look up, uh, geo charts for like Pinarellas and Bianchis and road bikes like that, yep. they'll never list the BB height. It's just drop. Yeah. And for me, I think the way that we look at things like on road bikes, effective top tube length and uh, on mountain bikes, reach and stack, those numbers make a lot of sense to me when I think of, um, you know, like, yeah, you're in, you're in the bike shop and you're looking at the geo chart or, or you're on the website looking at a geo chart because you wouldn't know what handlebars or you wouldn't know exactly the wheel diameter. So they're telling you what they can tell you, which is the one granular part of it. But then when you're designing the entire bike and you know exactly the handlebars and the cranks and the wheels, then, you know, ideally in a perfect world, I would think you would want to design based on, you know, center of gravity and fit position and, you know, these sorts of like more holistic, like the big picture stuff. And so I tend to have noticed that like, you know, bottom bracket drop is, is more of like a frame thing. Like when you're selling a frame by itself and you couldn't possibly know what the bottom bracket height is, but you do know the bottom bracket (laughs) drop. And then, you know, I try to encourage people sometimes to think more about the big picture, but then that, that doesn't always work either. You know, there's a time and a place for all these different variables. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's kind of like the, the, the great online debate between SAG and unsag geo for hardtails. Yeah. 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 You you can't have the whole picture unless you have the whole picture. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, I've started to like, like I was, tend to draw my hardtails unsagged uh, and then, you know, convert everything, do a little quick math to see what it would look like sagged. But I, I, I find it's hard to talk to, to people who aren't, you know, looking at these numbers and thinking about these every single day to, to consider both, especially if people are, you know, coming off dual suspensions and this is their first hardtail. Yeah. It's hard to communicate it all uh, swiftly. Yeah. Now, speaking of which, what's your what's your thoughts on uh, full suspension bikes? Is that something that you have a desire to uh, tackle one day? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that I've been kicking around since uh, I drew my first. I, since I built my first hardtail, um, uh, as soon as I downloaded BikeCab, I downloaded that linkage program as well, and I've done you know multiple variations of single pivots a couple of like dw link style bikes and then it just comes to the making it that i i always get caught up on uh how i'm gonna make it and then it's just like it's a project that would eat up so much time and money yeah uh it seems like a big endeavor right now like uh in my shop, I've got like a mini, mini mill and that's it. So there's like, 
there's part of me that definitely wants to build one, but I also don't think I want to build a single pivot. There's nothing wrong with single pivots. Like they ride really well. They're super easy to ride, but, uh, working in bike shops as long as I've had, I've ridden a ton of demo bikes and I've owned a ton of bikes. Yep. Um, so I, I know what, I really know what I like in a dual suspension and I really know what I don't like in the dual suspension. And then trying to figure out how I can make that in my shop with minimal machining, <laughs> uh, <laughs> minimal machining and, you know, mostly laser cut parts. If I can get away with it, it's a tough balance. Yeah. It's a really tough balance. Yeah. I, uh, I ordered in the middle of the summer, a, a Reeb squeeb and that just showed up right yeah. around Christmas time. And I'm so excited. And this time of year in Michigan is not particularly friendly to bike riding. So we haven't finished assembling it yet. That'll come pretty soon. And maybe I can uh, take a trip down South or something, but I I'm pretty excited. A couple of years ago for me to get a brief backstory about this, this isn't about me, this episode, but I, in the <laughs> frame building world, I just always felt like trying to do a full suspension bike as a one person shop was like sort of impractical. And I think a lot of people feel that way, but not everybody. And I've seen uh, more and more people lately who, you know, with software like linkage and with the accessibility of laser cut parts and, you know, more and more people have a CNC mill or they know somebody who has one. And so it's becoming a little bit more common to see them. And I always just assumed that I was never going to be able to make one. And so I, that like precluded me from even being that interested in buying one. And that was totally the wrong attitude. Yeah. Once I threw a leg over one a couple of years ago, yeah. I was like, oh, I get it. This is awesome. <laughs> and so I'm pretty excited <laughs> yeah. to have one. I don't think that I'll make one myself, but now it really changes the way that I talk to guests on the show and the way that I, I notice other builders work. And, uh, you know, I, I, I would really be enthusiastic to see more people do it. But I mean, having designed multiple piece assemblies, like the frame fixture that I do, which is not even a dynamic assembly, it's not like moving and it's a very complicated thing to do. And in like the iteration process, you know, you're going to build this bike and then to think that, you know, how are you going to know that it's good if you have to, every iteration, <laughs> you have to scrap all the parts and all the production tooling and start over again. It's just, it'd be really tough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's like a huge endeavor. And for the one that like, oh, I was originally thinking of building and I got really close to building, I was going to, you know, try and eliminate the the need to build multiple bikes, you know, build it with sliding dropouts, build it with the bottom bracket. You could put in the centric in to play with BB height and like effective seat tube angle and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just, even then it's like, if you build it in a way that you can adjust it, it's still like, you know, you might end up being like, well, this just doesn't work or it doesn't feel right on trail. Yeah. There was the frame building class I took in 2010 with uh, Doug Faddock in, well, in my state now of Michigan, he did a lot of lugged road bikes and touring and old school stuff. And he had built at one point this frame and it had like sort of a telescoping top tube, seat tube, down tube. I forget the specifics, but the idea was, and I think this is kind of an interesting story. The idea was that you would, uh, you'd be able to like, you know, loosen some socket head cap screws and extend the main tubes and change the frame geometry, tighten them down again. But uh, of course, you know, it was pretty heavy 
by the time you were done with it yeah. and it was still maybe a little bit noodly. And so the funny thing was he would have like a, you know, like a customer, potential customer, and they would be fitting him up and then he would adjust this bike and they would go take it for a ride. And so, you know, here he's thinking like, okay, I went to all this trouble. I made this test bike and now like I can, I can get some feedback from them and they would come back from the ride and they'd say, yeah, it was really heavy. <laughs> you know, like they couldn't get past that. And I, uh, that's maybe yeah. a little bit different. If you're doing the development on your own bike, you might be able to use some imagination because you understand that. But I think that there'd be some truth to that where it's like, it's a little hard to assess what the finished product is going to be, even though, you know, you still have some range of adjustment, but maybe it's a lot heavier or, you know, it's just different. Totally. Yeah. Uh, let's talk some about fillet bracing. That's the, seems to be the tube joinery method of choice, uh, for you. Uh, how did yeah. you learn how to do that? Uh, so I went to, uh, the high school I went to was like a trades prep high school for going and working up in diamond mines. Uh, so in high school, I was lucky enough to do, uh, a, a welding class. Uh, every day, almost every day in high school. That's awesome. Uh, unfortunately, it was uh, a welding class to send you to uh, work in a mine, so it was tons <laughs> of stick and meg, uh, um, and lots of like bend tests and pressure tests and stuff like that. Like really practical for the welding as a trade, but not super practical for what I'm doing now. Yep. Um, but we did do like you know we did some gas welding. Uh, we did like a week or two of TIG welding. Um, but I got a lot of like, you know, basic fabrication and cutting skills from that. Mm -hmm. Um, and then once I started working at the shop that had the, the frame jig, uh, I just started, uh, doing some practice stuff on scrap. Like we, <laughs> we cut up any steel warranty bike that we get We just cut the tubes out of it, sand the paint off and do some practice joints. That's awesome. Uh, so it's, so it's kind of just self self-taught on the fillet brazing, but I'd, I'd use a torch and stuff like that years before. Yeah. Well, it's looking great. And, um, yeah, thank you. Yeah. You're one of the not incredibly rare, but rarer builders who will leave fillets raw. Uh, I saw on your website that you have like an upcharge for if you want, you know, <laughs> if your customer would like the fillets to be finished, you know, sand, you yeah. Know, filed with a with a round file and finished with emery cloth i, I assume is your process there uh talk some about <clears throat> sorry I, I don't mean to leave such open-ended <laughs> questions uh what's yeah, what's the, no the thought process there between like leaving raw ones and finished ones what is it that you think is cool or special about one or the other yeah yeah i i i see bikes generally as like you know non-precious things like a lot more utilitarian. Um, it's kind of the same reason I don't build road bikes. Uh, road bikes are a lot more precious and I understand, you know, the art form behind it. Um, but when it comes to like mountain bikes, gravel bikes, park bikes, they're all going to be thrown around in the woods in, in some way or another. Um, so I think like aesthetically, like a, a raw fillet on a, on a roughed up mountain bike kind of fits it's yeah. the bike better than a, a smooth, smooth finished fillet. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I would agree with that. I, I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, I have some people that ask for it and I'm happy to do it. Um, I definitely 
with my brazing, I do a bit more of the like start stop, trying to make a stack of dimes uh, style of brazing. So when it comes to the customers that ask for the smooth fillets, I kind of have to change my process up a bit. Otherwise, the uh, the filing process is going to take twice as long as it needs to. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's time intensive. I always struggled with the especially the bottom bracket. Oh my god! All those like. For me, <laughs> the way that I would do it, the, the concave areas, they're just so difficult to get at. And I think actually more recently I saw, I was watching part of a Paul Brody video about fillet brazing. He specifically said, you know, make sure you build it up real thick here or else it's going to be a pain in the butt <laughs> to file later. And I said, yeah. oh my God, that's such a good idea. I never, it never even crossed my mind that you could do that. And so, you know. Yeah. It's a, to the builders of today, you got it a lot easier. You got all this YouTube content from from this incredible uh, guy, Paul <laughs> Paul Brody. But yeah, um, yeah, really helpful to watch some of that stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when I watched that video too, and it was when I was still like, you know, trying to figure things <clears throat> out. And I was like, yeah, damn, that makes so much sense. Like <laughs> trying to get in there with like a tiny little fillet, yeah, it's impossible. Yeah, yeah, it's, you just got your work cut out for you. And it's so hard on the thumbs. In fact, I remember back when I did more, well, I didn't have a, the first, I don't know, couple of years that I was doing frame building, I didn't have a TIG welder. And I and I also followed on Tumblr and Flickr and Instagram, all these different builders. And I think it was Brian from Royal H Cycles had posted about, when you're finishing fillets and you have your one inch wide strips of emery cloth and you're kind of pulling them. And so like if you're right handed, maybe you're pulling the cloth with your right hand and then you're using your left hand to guide it and you're maybe pushing down with your thumb. And that it's a pretty good way to actually <clears throat> the two hands together. Uh, but anyway, it's really it's pretty hard on your thumb. And he showed actually where and it works beautifully if you just like tape over your thumb. So like on your left hand, if you just like put some masking tape or maybe you could use electrical tape, I think I would usually use masking tape. But if you just like tape up your thumb, it just provides sort of a slippery coating and you can do so much more work before you actually get like blistered up. And so that was a helpful tip. But then seeing this Paul Brody video, I was like, oh, man, you probably wouldn't even need to abuse your thumbs in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 I after watching Paul Brody's videos, I was like, I need one of those like little mini belt sanders. Yep. Um, and I picked one of those up. I just picked up like a cheap, like Amazon knockoff, expecting to use it for a couple frames before it exploded just to see if it was worth it. But that thing has been like slugging it out for over a year in my shop now. And it's easily the best 75 bucks I've ever spent. Like that thing gets used for everything. Yeah. That's awesome. I have a actual Dynabraid Dynafile pneumatic tool that I got really early on. It is very expensive. I think the kit that it came with was nearly $500. And this was like close to 10 years ago. This isn't expensive. I mean, I'm not bragging about it so much as saying like <laughs> it was a misstep for me to think because this was back in the era of like the Google groups and the different frame builders forums and email list serves. And it just seemed to be the opinion of a lot of people that this Dynafile was like the tool. It was so helpful. 
And I thought that at that time, and maybe this is wrong, but it seemed like there weren't really that many other brands or offerings that did it. And they were still expensive if you could find them. And they made an electric version and they made a pneumatic version. And everybody said the pneumatic version was better. And I just think it was really misguided for me to buy this. Because first of all, I didn't have, you, you can't run that on a small air compressor. Like rotary air, <laughs> air tools require a huge volume of air. You need a pretty serious air compressor to run that very much. And I never had that. So it mostly just, I pretty much never used it until like the last year I've like found some, some projects here and there to use it. And, uh, you can just buy an electric one and now you can just buy an electric one cheap or like Paul Brody made, he made his own sort of frame and he has YouTube videos about how to build your own. I think when I talked to Adam Procise at Reeb, when I was visiting their shop in Colorado, he said that there's a trick you can do where you get like, uh, I think you get like the, you could ask him, but I think you get like the, the Harbor Freight tool and then you put it on like a Milwaukee 12 volt, like die grinder or something. And you hack this thing together that has like great performance, but that's really pretty cheap or I don't remember, but it just, you know, there's so many more options these days. I'm, I'm, I'm excited for people who don't want to waste their time filing fillets the hard way. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like mine, yeah, mine's just like a $75 thing on Amazon. And the only thing I've had to do to it is like pop out the rivets and put new bearings on the nose. That's awesome. Uh, the stock one's cracked like right away. But other than that, it's like, yeah, the, the greatest 75 bucks. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Don't overthink it, everybody. Just, <laughs> just get on with it, you know? And, and, and if yeah. it's, when you can spend that little and get into a tool, then it's like, okay, if you find it useful and it's awesome and, but the issue is quality and longevity, then replace it with a quality tool, but you don't always need to, you know, so you only need it if you need it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, I want to talk some about laser cut parts. I'm a huge fan yeah. for the frame building community. Anybody in it to learn to use two dimensional and three dimensional CAD software it's one. I think it's one of the best things you can do for yourself, and to learn, you know, how to three D print in plastics is just really, I think, helpful for a lot of people. Uh, learning how to create, you know, two D drawings and like DXF files and send those off to places to get things laser cut or water jet cut. I think that's huge. Uh, you know, three D printing in metals is becoming big. Uh, obviously, I'm a huge fan and proponent of CNC machining. And I see that you take advantage of the laser cut parts. Um, you know, how did you get started with that and how has that impacted what you've been able to do? Yeah. Yeah. So I, uh, I started to teach myself CAD, uh, like a year ago. Uh, originally it was for 3d printing. I was trying to, I thought that I'd be able to, you know, build some of the things that I'm now getting laser cut, some of the tools, uh, with a 3d printer. Um, I kind of bought myself the 3D printer as uh, encouragement to learn how to use Fusion so I could have something tangible while I was teaching myself. Yeah. And then once I discovered laser cutting, that's kind of taken over what I do my CAD work with now. Um, and it's just like it's such a huge time saver for like little parts around the shop um, yeah. and, and tools like – uh, for like my five piece yoke, like seat stays, they all need like a five eighths cap on each side of the seat stay. Mm -hmm. And before I would just like file those out of a piece of scrap or try and find the right size stainless washer from a catalog. 
Um, but, and you know, when I was filing them, it was like 20 minutes per little cap kind of thing mm-hmm. from scrap and they never matched. Uh, and then, you know, fired up a, on the laser cutter and I can get, you know, 75 cents a piece as many as I want. Yeah. Uh, you know, pre-drilled with a hole to shove a cable through and everything like it's for like little things like that it's so sweet and then like uh for my i also get my like drive side chain stay yokes uh cut with the laser cutter uh send cut send does the 4130 oh they um, do and i didn't, I didn't know they offer yeah. 4130 yeah they don't have a ton of thicknesses but but they've got it that's um, awesome and it's so nice for for the chain stay yokes uh, having them like pre-notched to fit inside of a chain stay yeah. and then pre-mitered for the bottom bracket. Like my little mill won't, does not like cutting chain stay yokes. So it's so nice to have, have it show up pre-mitered three tabs ready to go. I just have to throw a bend in it kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and then that's more excellent. recently, more recently I've been getting into this, like tire dummy tool that I've been making. Mm-hmm. Um, I've made myself one so far. And so it's just like laser cut adjustable. And then I can get different ends cut in for the different size tires that I use. Yeah. Uh, and then I, uh, I just have to like, you know, since it's only 2d, I have to raise on little bits on the ends to go over the dummy axle. Uh, and then I've also got, uh, like three quarter to one inch adapters cut out of brass for it. So I can run it on both sides of the dummy axles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think I'm going to start, I'm going to put that up on my website soon, just so like people can grab the file for cheap. Yeah. Or if they want me to build a whole tool, I'll build them a tool. Um, Cause in Canada, like I use send cut send, even though they don't ship to the States, I mean, into Canada. So I have to use like a shipping forwarder to get stuff from them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause any of the shops that I talk to locally uh, since the pandemic, they've gotten crazy busy and they don't want to be cutting ones and twos of stuff. Yeah. So using a sand cut sand is so good. Cause they'll, you know, they'll cut as many or as little as you want out of as many different materials as you want. Yeah. I, uh, several of the recent podcasts that I've done, we mentioned send, cut, send, and, uh, yeah, it's not like a paid partnership. There's no conspiracy. It's just, (laughs) they have a good website and you can get an instant price quote. And I think there's, uh, there must be several other sites that do this, but yeah, send, cut, send is plenty good enough. I haven't even had to (laughs) look elsewhere yet. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same way. Uh, something about a drag and drop website you can't really beat yeah it's so good and uh yeah they send you candy when you get it which i don't you know i don't really care about but it's pretty nice it, it stuff just yeah shows up and it's right and we do have a laser cut shop literally down the street from our current shop and so uh, you know if i have thicker heavier parts in a higher quantity then i'll definitely try and get the local place to do it so i don't have to screw around with shipping i think one of the bigger orders we did was over 100 pounds of stuff but uh yeah i mean when we prototyped those to make sure that they felt right we used send cut send because you know they were only i don't know half a pound a piece or something so yeah yeah and just like not having order minimums you know when you're 
a little bit more on the creative side of the manufacturing world and you're doing things a little bit more, you know, prototyping oriented and, you know, as, as single person frame builder shops tend to be, uh, you, you need those resources that not only will they do it in onesies and twosies, but they're also not going to grumble and groan about it. Like they're happy to do it. It's, <laughs> yeah. it. There's nobody you don't. And and also like, if you're one of the many people of our generation who has like, you know, getting on the phone anxiety or writing emails anxiety, then like how perfect. <laughs> yeah. 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 Big time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm definitely one of those people that uh, struggles to pick up the phone and tries to use, you know, an email or a website as much as possible. Exactly. So I, I get that. Yeah, the memes about like, oh yeah, just you're gonna just have to place a call in order to do this thing that would save your life, and then it's like, oh, I guess I'm gonna die. Then. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Uh, let's talk about paint. You got some pretty wacky and wild paint jobs going on: crackle finishes, fades, etc. Uh, I love that. That's you know, I I love the bright colors and the fades and all that stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I um. Like some of my early bikes, I painted myself. Like uh, I was when I was riding BMX, I was constantly painting my bikes myself uh, to varying degrees of success. Uh, and then once I started doing this, it was like a e easy way to get back into painting frames, uh, just in using like you know rattle can stuff for the most part on uh, some of the early frames and. Now uh, I've got my partner, April, and she's an artist, and she's started to do those, like, cool, drippy, goopy paint jobs on our bikes um, that we've been offering to people. Uh, yeah, I just, like, I, I love a bright bike. Like, it's hard hard to beat, like, something that kind of stands out and is different. Like, yeah, a lot of my personal bikes end up just being single color. Like, I'll hand it off to, you know, a painter that paints cars just to, like, get it back back to the shop quick and rideable mm -hmm. uh, but yeah the, the bright bikes that stand out you know they're sweet yeah yeah i i think uh yeah crackle finish stuff looks really cool that's a fun one you don't see all the time um yeah yeah really cool it's uh you know some yeah. pe some people have this attitude i think that they really care about the metal work and they're almost like jealous of or annoyed that that paint work always seems to steal the show or you go to a <laughs> trade show like nabs and you know hear all these people walking the show floor are so preoccupied with paint and it's unfair or it misses the true artistry or something and i mean you know like from a young age i feel like we respond to to paint it's like it's so visceral and obvious and you know, you should, you should get excited to look at the, the cool bike. That's like part of the fun. It's like, here's a vehicle that's created totally. for the purpose of fun. <laughs> like it should be fun yeah. to look at too. Absolutely. Yeah. Match, match the intended youth, you know, having fun ripping around. Exactly. Uh, I want to talk some about your brand wizardry. Uh, wizard uh, is the brand name. And there's, you know, there's some pretty cool, like graphical stuff going on with the, with the, the wizard's hat. And also I do like the goopy stuff, the, the goopy sort of drippy yeah. graphics are really fun too. That's maybe a little bit apart from wizardry itself, but very cool and fits with the brand. But 
yeah, I'd love to hear you talk some about what the Wizard Bikes brand is and how I feel like as I've understood it for myself and some other people is that like usually when you start your own thing, the brand sort of congeals over time. Like you start to kind of figure it out and it becomes a little bit more cohesive and intentional. Um, how's that process been for you? Cause I feel like it's really starting to come into this very cool and exciting kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, uh, the, the history of the name is, uh, I used to run a, a BMX blog called Curb Wizard uh, because of the, since it rains so much in the winter here, uh, we ride parking garages all winter on BMXs, just riding like little like uh, sidewalk islands and stuff. So I filmed like a couple of edits and just called them Curb Wizards because we were just literally riding curbs. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, uh, it became like an Instagram handle and nickname. And my first couple of bikes, I just threw Curb Wizard on them since that's what I was uh, I was been known as. And then for the bike brand, I wanted to like you know create some separation between my personal identity and the bike identity, so I just shortened it down to Wizard. Mm-hmm. And from there, it's just kind of been growing. Like um, with April being an artist, she's been able to like create that hat for me uh, that I've started to slap on everything. Um, and then the, the goopiness kind of just comes from like, you know, the, the magical realm. It's pretty yeah. easy to like continue, like with something like wizard, there's, there's so much like in, in the culture already that you can pull from. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I, I think that's very true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's awesome. It's it's. A, I think it's a good energy and the the progressive politics slash pro- progressive geometry is like a. It's cute, but it's also you know it works because it kind of gets at I think two sides of your brand, which is like it, it's a technical sort of announcement or declaration of like the the kinds of bikes that you're interested in and you're focused in, but you go about it in a certain sort of way where like there there's a definitely a political, uh, you know, ethos to 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 the brand as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like I've not, I've never been one to to shy away from you know political discussion, making decisions based on that kind of stuff. Like uh, I have pretty f- far left leaning political ideologies, um, and you know trying to carry that into like a brand and you know see see what I want to see in the world, um, be it through like donations or you know. The, the the people I build bikes for is pretty important to me. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it should be, I think, you know, the, the way that you go about this work, I think to be, uh, you know, an artisan bicycle builder or, or anyone, it is very personal work, you know, and, yeah. uh, you should be able to choose the way that you want to do it. And it only makes sense that it's a reflection of, you know, if you're the artist, then, yeah, then it'd be a re- reflection of that, of who you are too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to talk some about handlebars. Handlebars are something that yeah. I have never actually built. I did a couple stems. I've, eh, yeah, I never touched handlebars, and I've thought about doing that a couple times, 
as a YouTube series because I think it would be really fun. And you can definitely make some handlebars on my tube bender, although it's a little bit limiting for exactly what you can pull off and you kind of need to hot rod it to get every like to get the most out of it. But anyway, I, I think handlebars are really cool and I've seen you do quite a few of them. Uh, like how did you get started with that and what is exciting to you about being able to do handlebars and offer that? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Handlebars have been super fun. Uh, it, I got into it, uh, because I was trying to get some handlebars for my 26 inch bike. Uh, and since my 26 inch bike isn't suspension corrected, the front end is super low and you need a handlebar kind of in between the normal mountain bike bar and the BMX bar, mm -hmm. like either side of that kind of goofy on that bike. Um, and throughout my search of trying to find a handlebar, uh, there wasn't a ton of options for me besides custom. And I was, you know, already building frames at that point. So if I was going to get a custom bar, I wanted to make it myself. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I started doing some like research into two benders and kind of found out, what you know would work best for making handlebars i talked to the guy over at doom and i talked to someone that was actually using your bender for mm -hmm. uh bars and kind of weighing the options uh i ended up going with like a pretty big bender like a model 32 from jd squared mm -hmm. um and i picked up to start i picked up like a six, six inch die because i was worried about like crinkling the tubes while bending them. Mm -hmm. um, and that was like, a, it was a good start. Like I built a ton of bars with that, but they, they were all coming out like super swoopy and I wasn't able to get a ton of rise without making them crazy wide. Yeah. Uh, and then I picked up uh, a tighter radius, a three or three and a half inch. And now I'm so happy with how they're looking. Like they have a bit more of like a distinct look. Um, you can do a lot more with the uh, rise and, you know, under yeah. 800 mils of width. Um, yeah. Yeah. Bars have been super cool. It was hard to figure out how to make the bars too. Yeah. Um, they're challenging. Like getting, yeah, it was like compound bend on the top bend. It took a, I ate up a lot of tubing trying to figure out, you know, how to get back sweep uh, and up sweep out of the same bend and, being able to pr predict what I was going to get. Um, I have just like a notebook beside my bender now, and I just write down every bar that I make, if it works or it doesn't work, kind of like what I did each step of the way. Yeah. So that if someone asks for a bar, you know, with 30 degrees back sweep or 10 degrees back sweep, I can kind of reference what I've done in the past to, to get it going. Yeah. Yeah, I when I I get pretty regularly I get inquiries from you know prospective tube bender customers uh, for the tube bender that I make and sell, and they'll ask about doing handlebars. What's actually pretty common is people saying, "I would love to get into frame building, and I appreciate the tool and this and that. Maybe I could start by using it with you know for handlebars, and then maybe I'll work into frames later." And what I always have to tell people is that mine allows you to dabble in handlebars. It's certainly not like the handlebar, you know, perfect bender because uh, handlebars are tough for a lot of reasons. They uh, ideally you would usually want a really tight center line radius, which is just not something like we have our, our tightest is four and a half inches. 
and you can make some bars with that, but it's a little limiting. And with its standard configuration, the minimum straight section between opposing bends is like two and a half inches, or I think that's 64 millimeters. And uh, you can modify the bender to allow you to get those bends a little bit tighter. But man, if you're trying to make, like you were saying, less than 800 width and uh, any amount of rise, it's really tough with a larger radius and then to have that big straight section in the middle. And I say this not having made the bars myself, but I've modeled them in CAD enough <laughs> to know where you would have to put the bends at the different radius. And if I were to make a pair of bars tomorrow, I would definitely start and you know build a parametric model in CAD that, that showed me where to put the bends at which radii. So I knew I would just make myself a little action plan with step-by-step. Step. But, but anyway, yeah, I mean, you really want something in like the what, two to three inch centerline radius. And you want to be able to have the the tightest back-to-back -back spacing possible, really, especially if you were going to make like a 10 millimeter rise or something like a shorter rise. From what I remember, yeah. you, you really need to be able to get those tight together and especially on narrow handlebars, geez. And so uh, anyway, it's it's tough because typically getting back-to-back -back bends really tight together is, is tough on a lot of benders, just the way that the tubes are supported. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Even with the one that I picked up, I've had to like modify like the clamping mechanism uh, a, a little bit just to like be able to like even so you can grab the tube within the bend essentially. Like mm -hmm. when you're really trying to cinch it up, just being able to grab that other t the tube. Uh, in, yeah. Like in the corner of the bend so you can minimize the rise, like the higher rise bars, wider bars are actually easier than yep. the, the low narrow stuff. Yeah. Yeah, because you think like once you get a bend on it, if it's wide, then like, you know, you, you can get more rise anyway. But it's if you're familiar with CAD, that is the best way to like plan the handlebar bends. And in fact, sometimes I would say to people who are thinking about the bender for handlebars, I'd say, well, if you're familiar with CAD, just start sketching out what you would want to make. And that'll tell you the centerline radius and all these things. But, you know, if you don't already know how to use CAD... And again, that speaks to my point earlier that it's one of the best things you can do for yourself if you like making stuff is, you know, getting familiar with 2D and 3D CAD is just, it goes so far toward, you know, your, your toolkit, really. Totally. Yeah, uh, I'll have to, to bug you for uh, a little uh, lesson after this for Happy to. handlebars and CAD. I, yeah, I might need to make something... a YouTube video about that. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely something that I tried and then I had someone else uh try and help me out as well i can't think of his real name but i can think of his instagram name uh, <laughs> underpaid intern oh yes uh yep uh he he helped me out with the cad drawing um and for my first set of bars after i had wasted about 20 feet of tubing um and that was a huge help but you know i i, I sat in sat in fusion for a long time trying to figure it out and looking at youtube videos and i still can can figure it out yeah, it's uh, Daniel. Uh, yeah. I just looked it up on Instagram. Yeah, yeah, we're all we all sort of think of and know of each other by our screen names predominantly. I think, but uh, I, I was talking Absolutely. some to Daniel recently, and uh, yeah, D Daniel's really doing some very cool and impressive stuff, and uh, and I'm I'm happy to see that sort of that fire burning in the frame building community and hopefully it catches and spreads to other people, this like uh, enthusiasm for an adoption of, you know, like the tools that are really pretty available and accessible these days. Absolutely. Yeah. Seeing the stuff that he's designing 
uh, has been really been making me think about like parts of my bikes uh, that could be 3D printed. And you know, yeah, it's got me in fusion drawing for sure. Yeah, I, I think about it a little bit like I own these machine tools, a CNC mill and a CNC lathe, and I produce machined parts. And I think what I do for people that keeps me in business is a lot more than just the machining part of it. But I also am like, I'm pretty aware that if all I literally made money off of was selling people machined parts, that'd be a little bit scary just because like, I feel like in the next five to 10 years, the, the affordability and the accessibility of 3d printing is like kind of, you know, like the job security side of it or whatever, you know, like worrying about your, <laughs> yeah. the scarcity mindset or something. But anyway, and so, you know, I try to focus on like, maybe I could help my customers with more than just the thing, like by producing a podcast and being relevant in more than just one way and anyhow, but yeah, I mean, I think it's very important to like, uh, to take advantage of this, this opportunity that we have because the, the 3d printed components are just getting more accessible and, I don't know if they're really falling that much in price year after year, but it's certainly getting a little bit easier to acquire them. And the, the pool of people who have experiences where you can ask them, like, how did that go? That's a bigger and bigger pool all the time also. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Pretty exciting. Uh, just what's capable and, and uh, the difference between, with machining, you know, you start with a block or a cylinder typically, and you remove material to get to your finished shape. And with 3D printing, you know, you build it up. But what, one of the biggest differences is that 3D printing is really good for like complicated or hollow internal things. And machining is really good for stuff that remains mostly blocky or mostly cylindrical because it still has enough material totally. there to, to be rigid while you're machining it. And there's less that you had to remove. And so, you know, when you look at a part like something that's tube-like, like a chainstay yoke or one of these tube junctions or a dropout, like it's really less like a rectangular or cylindrical block. And it's more like a dainty little thing. It really makes a lot of sense that you would want to 3D print that sort of part. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that part that they're making, the like uh, top tube to seat stay kind of joint that they're making that wraps around the seat yeah. tube, that's like such a clean clean execution i think of like what's possible with 3d printing absolutely yeah it looks really clean and really smooth i love watching uh uh market prova cycles just uh he, he's one of the folks that i saw doing that earliest you know doing it really well and um i don't know if he was the first one but anyway he's he's done that with artistry for years now and and i see more and more people doing that and it's uh it's a really cool really cool style to build a bike i haven't looked at the numbers to see exactly how much you would have to spend in dollars every time and you know how feasible that is for small builders to really fully adopt it but it's just so cool yeah yeah i agree let's talk about the ritual rack that's a really cool handlebar yeah handlebar rack of some sort uh yeah what's the story with that yeah yeah the ritual rack was like uh, uh an idea that i had kicking around in my head for a bit and then uh i had a customer ask for it essentially um so i just kind of had to uh, take it from my brain and put it out onto the bike somehow um because it I've there's products that you can buy like the salsa anything cradle that push 
the cargo out in front of your cables and housing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but it has, you know, like any product that's mass produced has like its own limitations and stuff. And I wanted to make something that could uh, take a, like a lot more weight essentially. And then also be uh, compatible with suspension forks, especially on smaller bikes where you have to worry about tire bottom out. If you're running like a, a big bag on the front. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so the original ones I built, uh, since I didn't have a proper two bedroom at the time, I could only build them with flat bars. Uh, so I did them with like an integrated stem and then the rack that the, uh, the brace that went down to the headset spacer. Um, and that, that style worked out really well. And, uh, like lots of people have been putting pack rafts on them and stuff like that. So they can take a fair amount of weight and bulk. Yeah. Uh, and then more recently, since I got the two bender, I've been able to like integrate it a lot more cleanly, I think, on to like a, you know, a clunker style handlebar with a cross brace. You can just run in a normal stem. So you're not committed to like, you know, a bar stem system. Something yeah. you can like more easily swap in and out on like, you know, your normal bike that you ride all the time rather than having it. With the bar stem, you kind of have to pick a head tube angle range that, like, the back sweep and up sweep are going to feel good in. Yeah. So you're more committed to the one bike. Yeah. It's, it's a really cool system there to see that. I uh, When I was at the Philly Bike Expo not that long ago, I saw, uh, I think, Stephen Wood, who does Swood Cycles, has the, the T-bar, or I don't remember the name, but it was a support for a... I think a slightly different style of handlebar bag and it was something I had just never thought of. And I said, Oh, that's really clever. And then when I was, you know, preparing for this interview and looking at something I had seen before, but this, this ritual rack, it's just cool to see like the ways that the custom frame building community can address the everyday needs of riders differently than, you know, uh, sunlight or uh, these other sort of, you know, walled, these other sort of, rack and hardware you know manufacturing companies it's uh it's exciting to me to see like the sort of the big opportunities in frame building but then also like these more niche little things that are still incredibly exciting and awesome yeah yeah those uh those wood t-bars are super cool like being able to take like you know your your big production bag and just like push it off the head to push it off the cables is is so smart and like with mine, I just wanted it to work with like, you know, any bag, like, you know, stuff sack, dry bag kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and then that leads in well to the uh the cargo deck, right? That's I believe that's the um the laser cut and then you put a sort of a bend into it, mounts to a water bottle bosses, and you can strap some more cargo to your bike, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah. Those are just like yeah, little little tube decks. Uh, I get them laser cut out of uh, stainless, so I don't have to you know get them powder coated or anything. They're just ready to go after a little bit of you know hand deburring. Uh, yeah, there's. Um, uh, I got the idea from my buddy Jesse Wildwood. He does the he does an aluminum one that he gets powder coated in a bunch of cool colors now. Uh, and I wanted to be able to do something similar, just like a little bit different, the big W on it. Yeah. And it's just like, yeah, it's kind of cool to be able to offer something like that. Kind of like your top caps where it's like, you know, less of a commitment. 
uh, for someone to pick something up, but still wants the support. Absolutely. Yeah. And speaking of top caps, you have some really cool looking ones in your web store with your, like, uh, it looks like those are laser etched or, or maybe that was just a sample for a pre-order, but it was like a laser etched, the wizard's hat on a clean sort of top cap, right? Yeah. Yeah. Those ones are, uh, made here. They're cnc here on the Island. Yeah. Uh, and then laser etched as well. Yeah. Here on the Island by, uh, Emory at far side. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And those things have been super popular. Like I just kind of first batch just got like a handful of them and they sold out before they hit my web store and now, uh, just waiting on the big batch to show up from them. Yeah. I, back in September for people who don't follow me that closely, uh, I just decided on a whim that it would be fun to make a bronze. I had a really nice white industries headset top cap and I loved it. And I said, you know, it'd be fun to make one that said Cobra in a similar kind of style, but make it out of bronze. I love 954 bronze. I use it for a couple things. It's a nice material. And so I made one and then I just kept making more and more. And for a period of time there, that was half of our revenue stream was making top caps out of bronze and titanium. I had no idea that that would be such a hit. And it makes a lot of sense though, that like the bicycle is this thing that we all love and it's beautiful and it's functional and front and center on the bicycle right up top is your headset cap and you can express yourself. It doesn't need to be this like, (laughs) crummy aluminum chunky thing it can be something really cool it could be aluminum it could be another material it could be anodized it could be laser etched it could be painted you could make one out of bamboo who cares like it's it's a it's a it's it's such an aesthetically front and center thing and what's really cool about it as an opportunity to anybody who makes stuff is that uh you could make an incredibly lavish and expensive one and it's still generally going to be affordable enough that any average person could buy it on a whim. And so they're not terribly hard in my experience to sell ones. And so it's a, it's kind of like if you're a frame builder, it's kind of like the t-shirt <laughs> of like your, yeah. your business. And uh, I'm uh, glad to hear that yours have sold well and no doubt they of course would. They're really cool. I like the way that they look and there's, obviously lots of people who would like to support your brand and what you're doing. And this gives them an opportunity to do that without having to, you know, buy a, you know, however many thousands of dollars bicycle, which is of course not always within reach for everybody at every moment. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely, yeah. You can kind of look at it like a t-shirt or a hat or something, but you know, you get to have it on your bike all the time. Yeah. And, and, and like, the, the like aesthetic changes of like having like a nice flat top like recessed bolt like you're doing and like Emery's doing it like it it does clean up the bike like a fair bit like it's surprising how nice uh, and clean it looks yeah for such a small thing it changes everything and uh yeah we've we've done a bunch of them you know like builders will send us uh their artwork or just what they want on it and we'll make them a run in titanium or bronze we've done a lot of that uh, but also just, you know, for ourselves, we have them on all our own bikes now. And uh, all the ones that we've sold through our web store, I get tagged in all these images that people share of the ones that they put on their bikes. And it's so cool, you know, and like to uh, a lot of the phrases and stuff that we put on them is just silliness, you know, but it's, it's, you know, it's why we ride bikes. It's just for fun. It's not, it's not to, it's not to impress your boss or something. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, uh, I noticed that you got some cool forks that you've been producing. Um, wh- what gave you the itch to start making some steel forks? Yeah, uh, it's kind of kind of like frames. It's like, you know, once you realize that it is something you can make and it is something custom that you can have, uh, it was kind of on the, I was like tentatively on the list after, you know, after a frame jig, essentially, uh, of uh, getting a fork jig. And then I had uh, a friend and customer who was very persistent that he wanted me to build him a fork. Uh-huh. Uh, for one of his bikes and that's kind of like what kept the ball rolling like it kind of kept getting backburnered for different tools or different projects but yeah uh, i had a customer who was like no i want a fork from you and so that's kind of kind of what kept that ball rolling and got me to actually pull the trigger on 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 a on a jig and start making it and he he was like i want a fork from you i don't want number one uh so you know build a couple and build mine. <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of a big uh, request. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It made sense at the time. Yeah, and no, I so see, I built I myself it. a fork. Yeah. Uh, built myself a fork for my cross country bike. Uh, and I've had it on pretty much since, um, put like, you know, probably close to 2000 kilometers on it now. Um, when I built it, I thought I was just going to put it on test, ride it, make sure it feels good. Uh, make sure, you know, there's no kind of errors in my, my method. And I actually haven't taken it off. Like I've been really enjoying riding the rigid fork and now I can kind of, you know, let other people know that, you know, even though the riding on the Island and the riding in BC is so chunky, it's like, you can still have a ton of fun on a rigid bike. Yeah. You know, something that's funny for me is I, I rode fixed gear bikes and, you know, road bikes and commuters. And, and I, I love the idea of a fixie cause it just strips away everything you don't strictly need. And then I, I, I thought that mountain biking would be cool and I had no background in it. And so I, I got started mountain biking with like a single speed, full rigid bike thinking, you know, simplicity is sexy and cool. And, and I think it was a misstep for me to go that route personally, just because like it was hard enough for me to, to ride the trails and keep up with anybody else in the first place. (laughs) But I have so much admiration for people who can really pull it off because like what you always hear about, you know, riding single speed and full rigid and all these, anything that makes it harder is that like, it would make you a better rider. It's like, it's a good challenge. Uh, I don't know that I needed an extra challenge on top of, (laughs) on top of what I was, not that it was so hard. I'm just not particularly good at that stuff. But, um, and part of why I'm so excited to be getting into full suspension riding. I, but anyway, uh, yeah, it's uh, uh, full full rigid mountain biking is uh, it's no joke. Yeah, yeah, it's super fun. And I think I think like from the learning how to mountain bike thing, I think it's something you come back to. You know, jumping both feet in with a rigid single speed is probably the the hardest hardest way to get into mountain biking. Yeah, but I think for people that you know are a bit more experienced or, you know, I've been riding dual suspension and hardtails, like going to a rigid bike is like a pretty fun transition. Like, and it can kind of teach you, you know, like line choice and like looking at trails differently. Just, yeah, it's a different experience for sure. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, just like anything, you know, you might be intimidated or overwhelmed at first and just trying to get started. And then later, you know, 
adding more challenges on top of what you can already do is probably healthy and good. And there's a, a time and a place for that. Same thing with, um, you know, like if, if you want to start building bikes and you want your first bike to be a race weight titanium frame with a raw finish <laughs> or something, it's like you might be able to pull that off, maybe, but it might maybe. be a lot more practical to start with something that we know to be more approachable. Uh, just so that you don't Absolutely. get frustrated and and give up or something. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, same same train of thought for sure. Yeah, uh, you've done a lot of with the laser cut, you know, the W and and other things, and brazing that onto the frame, which looks awesome. You know, like sort of a brushed stainless look through powder coat or something. A lot of times. Uh, those would come to you laser cut and flat. And then I'm guessing that you silver braze them and through a combination of the brazing action and the heat, maybe softening the metal, you're able to sort of bend them around while you're brazing them on or how does that work? Uh, uh yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm so happy with how those, those turned out. They were definitely a bit of a shot in the dark when I ordered those pieces. Uh, so yeah, I get them laser cut, uh, in one piece with like little tabs connecting each letter. Mm -hmm. Um, and then I just, uh, clamp together a bunch of Paragon tube blocks yeah, and then just smush them into the, the open half of the tube blocks to get the initial shape. Uh, and then just like kind of pound them with a hammer around the same size tube until they sit on the tube, uh, as flat as possible. And then, uh, Cut the tabs out and then, yeah, silver braze them in place. Just hold them with uh, as many clamps as I have in the shop. Yeah. Make sure they're all, you know, kind of in plane with, with each other. And then, yeah, silver braze them in. I, I had always wondered how folks got those to lay down as nicely, uh, depending on the material. Um, like if you have a flat piece and you want to bend a curve into it, like around a, you know, inch and three eighths tube or something. Uh, you, you might put a bend into the middle of it, but right toward the very edge can be kind of hard to get that same bend on it because you don't have any material beyond it to use as like leverage, if that makes any sense. <laughs> yeah. And uh, and so like if you smush it into a two block or something that can help. And I think I believe I was talking to Zach from Amigo Frameworks. I think it was him. Somebody was telling me that if you, while you're doing the brazing, that material is also just softer you know, when it's at temperature. And so if you, if you can kind of like bend it around and tap it down while you're brazing it, uh, that can be of assistance. And that had never occurred to me. And I thought, yeah, that's maybe how people actually do that. I, I didn't even realize that, but you're saying that for your process, you're mostly cold forming those into that shape. Yeah, pretty much entirely. Um, like, and it, like with like the, the letter W it like pretty much gets the exact shape out of the tube blocks like the r's and the z's with the diagonal pieces mm -hmm. those things do not want to bend in the <laughs> in the two blocks at all so that's like tapping it with a hammer and then putting it back in the tube block because when you hit it with the hammer it'll flatten out different spots yeah um i've tried some like forming while it's hot but the problem is the the flux will cool and harden underneath you know the the next piece over kind of thing I see. and start pushing that piece up yeah, yeah. Well, and also I know, um, not from experience doing exactly this, but I do know that if you have the materials hot enough that the, 
the applique or you know what what you're putting on if that's soft enough to bend so is your tubing and like i've seen <laughs> i think one time many years ago i just had like a cheap spring clamp that i was using to hold it was a cyclocross bike with a front derailleur and it was a top pull shimano cx70 front derailleur and so i had like one of those uh barrel slit style cable terminations or housing terminations and i had that clamped onto the seat tube and i didn't even realize that when you heated up the tube to brazing temperature for silver brazing that the spring pressure from that clamp was then enough to actually um uh, and it was it was levered in it had quite a bit of leverage actually at where it was clamping but anyway it actually distorted the roundness of the tube in that location it squished it down i, I think that was a uh, I don't know, 0.9 wall or something, uh, chromoly tube. But yeah, I was kind of surprised to see that it dented in, but it really did. And, uh, it was pretty upsetting to me, but yeah, anyway, you need to be careful <laughs> if you're trying to lever these things around that you wouldn't also, uh, you know, misshape the tubes. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, would you, uh, you had talked a little bit about, in high school having access to some like sort of Votech metalworking welding coursework. Uh, but yeah, what, I mean, what was your experience? You know, you were working in bike shops and you found, you know, the opportunity to get onto some of these frame jigs and start building. And uh, you know, w were there any local individuals or was it internet community or was it mostly this, you know, just picking up stuff that you remembered from high school or how did you find, you know, some of the guests on this show have actually done a frame building class or something, but, you know, was your experience that learning the actual metalworking skills was challenging or not, not so much? Uh, yeah, yeah. It was definitely a, a very steep learning curve. Uh, my, my first frame that I built for myself lasted about 600 kilometers before the C tube on it split. Um, you, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it was super frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and I did like as many bubble cum repairs as I could on top of it to, to keep it riding until I built my second frame. Uh, but yeah, it was like, I did a lot of, uh, talking to people on the internet. Um, I, I know Sam from naked through yep. cross racing and mountain biking racing on the Highland. Mm -hmm. Uh, so I was able to talk to him and then through chance, I met Danielle Schoen, uh, at, in Squamish, uh, I needed a place to stay for a bike race, mm -hmm. and a friend set me up to stay on uh, her couch while she was building her new shop. So I was a I've been able to like talk to her a ton about brazing, mm -hmm. which has been super super helpful. I'm sure. Um, yeah, she knows yeah. what she's doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's mostly just been talking to people online, reading old forums. Uh, as much good and bad information as there is <laughs> out there. Uh, I think I've read most of it trying to teach myself. And then those Paul Brody videos came out like when I was building my second frame, I think, and that that was uh, an immense help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I remember trying to figure out a lot of frame building related things back in, you know, from 2010 on. And I just never knew how to sniff out the difference between like good posts online and bad ones. It's kind of like if you were in a, if you had a, if you had a research paper for a high school English class or something 
and you needed to yeah. cite a couple credible sources and maybe high schoolers don't always know yet at that age how to how to tell if something is credible or not and it was like that for me with uh these these frame building posts online and i'm sure if i looked back now I, it would be a lot easier for me to kind of smell the bullshit but <laughs> but back then i would just <laughs> i just kind of take things at face value and say wow okay i guess i I'm really going to need a gas fluxer if I'm ever going to get anywhere. I don't know what it was that I, <laughs> it, whatever the Kool-Aid yeah. was, I was probably just ready to drink it all. And, uh, uh, just sort of a weird euphemism we have, but any, anyway, uh, yeah, <laughs> it's just, uh, it, it, it can be kind of hard when you're uninitiated to know, um, yeah, to be able to smell the horse shit, I guess. <laughs> and there's definitely some of yeah. that out there. Some people are just really oh, happy absolutely. to share what they think they know. <laughs> yeah yeah i mean like like one example uh like there's so many things where it's like even within the 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 non-bullshitters there's like such split opinions yeah there really uh, is like like in mountain bikes like head tube gussets is a perfect example you can read read a ton about how they're the the, the right thing or the wrong thing and people have evidence to back it up on both sides of the argument yeah and when you're just getting started it's like it, it, it's hard to you know figure out where you're going to land on it without yeah. uh building and breaking a few bikes yeah for sure yeah it's it's not a simple thing it's it's kind of it's helpful in life when you stumble into a new thing a new arena that you're trying to understand and if there's like strong consensus and then you can you can kind of say okay cool i'm glad i got up to speed on this now i know and some things in life just don't come with that sort of uh easy answer and it's it's kind of yeah it's it can be a little disheartening and the, it takes a while to to really find what you find to be the truth absolutely yeah yeah but i think like from like what i've experienced like surprisingly enough like instagram has been like one of the better places to like you know, connect to people and learn and, you know, be able to ask direct questions and get responses, whether it's like through DMs or, you know, putting something up in a story. There seems to be uh, a lot of helpful, nice people out there willing to share information freely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of that. I just think the, the nature of the community is that most of us who are interested in it, we're not... Um, not in it just to make a quick buck and we're not typically people are not so like uh afraid to to like give away their hard-earned secrets but in fact a lot of us who are interested in it we spend our lives surrounded by people who mostly are not that interested in this weird craft that we love and don't get it and can't carry on a conversation about it and so it's just kind of nice to have friends out there in the internet who share your weird, <laughs> yeah. your weird, you know, obsession or whatever. And, uh, you know, if, if you can help them or they can help you, it's pretty exciting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's so nice. Yeah. And, and, you know, the people in our lives who don't care about frame building, we love them for other reasons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's kind of nice that yeah. not everything in your life needs to be one dimensional, but, uh, absolutely. Uh, that's most of what I had on my list. Uh, we got some time if you'd like to talk about anything else in particular. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing that uh, I keep thinking back to, like listening to your your podcasts and episodes and also like 
from the online reading is it's like pretty interesting to see the people who come from like the welding and machinist backgrounds and then the people that come from like more of the bike industry side of things who start up frame building and kind of see, you know, what kind of skill sets they bring in from different sides of, you know, the frame building side itself. Like, uh, your most recent episode, like he was talking about, uh, you know, having multiple, the ability to have multiple machines set up in his shop for different processes. Uh, and it's like, that's something that like, I hadn't even considered coming from like the bike industry side. You know, you have your, your one set of tools that you use, you use it for everything and mm-hmm. you keep going on to the next thing kind of thing. Yeah. It's just interesting to like hear from different people what skills they bring into it and which like kind of like line of thinking, like it's cool to hear that. Yeah. Well, and it's funny too, cause Tom, you know, came from, from bikes and along the way in the pursuit of frame building did go to community college for metalworking, but that was only along the way. And like, for me, I feel like so much more, um, like, like if I have a claim to anything, I feel a lot more comfortable with CNC machining in the business than I run than I do like anymore. The bike world feels like, uh, I feel a little bit like an outsider sometimes in the cycling world and, <laughs> and an imposter almost because like, I, you know, I, I don't ride my bike as much or I'm not as talented of a rider. I haven't built as many frames as most of the people that I relate to anymore. Uh, and yet I don't know that I ever would have gotten any familiarity with manufacturing if it wasn't for bicycles, because when I was 19 and I started riding a bike seriously, and then I heard about frame building and I signed up for a frame building class. I didn't know what a TIG welder was. I didn't know what a bridge port was. I, I sort of knew what a lathe was. And I've just figured out all this stuff since then because I got interested and YouTube exists and you can teach yourself things, but you know, so like, <laughs> what uh it sounded a little bit like the way you were framing it was that like you know like you know that you came from the bike world and not so much from the metalworking world but the way i see it is that like you're uh you're on track to be just as machine and engineering adept as any of us because i can see that you're interested and you're adopting it and uh, that that's what i would project is probably the path that you're on you know not not to yeah. project but <laughs> No, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that yeah, yeah, like the, sh- the shift coming from the bike world. It's like, yeah, it's pretty interesting. Like my my shop's in in the bike shop that I work at. Like I I have a little dark corner in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, I have the ability to walk over to uh, into the shop and grab. You know, if a customer's getting a gravel bike, I can grab some GRX cranks off the shelf. Wow, throw Must them in the nice. frame, make sure they fit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, you know, like a, the facing and shaping tools are just there, ready to go. But then it's like, uh, I don't have a lathe or, you mm-hmm. know, don't know anyone downtown with a lathe. So like a little like simple part, it, you know, could take me all day to make with hand tools. Yeah. Whereas, you know, someone like, like Embry, for example, with the access to CNC machines after hours, it's like, you know, whip something up super quick or not quick, but you know, yeah. having the different tools from the different backgrounds, it's interesting what people can make of it and from it. Yeah, for sure. And and where I have lived, uh, both in Michigan and maybe even more so when I was in central New York state, um, 
but like anywhere in the United States and sort of like the rust belt, uh, post-industrial, whatever, these, these sorts of frame builder tools, like old mills and lathes are generally very easy to find for a pretty good deal. Especially if, if all you're going to use the mill for is to notch tubing, that mill could be freaking clapped out. It could be pretty much destroyed <laughs> and it's still probably going to do a good job. You don't, you're not asking that much of it. And uh, so yeah. anyway, it, it's, um, I don't think everything is all, you know, sunshine and rainbows about living in the Rust Belt, but that one particular aspect is quite convenient. And uh, I feel like, you know, I, I kind of rather have been from like, you know, the West coast or something sounds nicer, but we do have all this old industrial iron that you can get for scrap price. If you, if you kind of look around for a little sniff around for a little while, you'll find stuff for incredibly good deals. And I realize lots of people in other parts of the world, especially in, you know, Australia or uh, presumably in BC, but a lot of places, you know, even out West in the United States, there's a lot of places where finding that machinery is, is hard and for me, knowing in the places where I lived, the cost of getting these machines being so low, I would say, you know, you just get the machines today. It's going to make your life so much easier. But for a lot of people, it's not so easy. Absolutely. Yeah. It's like that here on the island. Like there isn't a ton of industry on the island. So like used mills, used lathes, definitely they, they don't show up. And from what I've seen, the ones that do show up are like, you know, hobby mills like mine just, you know, someone with a shop kind of thing in their garage. Um, there's a bit more over in Vancouver, but getting stuff over to the island, uh, you know, got a, got a ferry involved. So it's like renting a truck, uh, paying hundreds of dollars to put said truck on the ferry, you know, mm -hmm. adds up quickly. Considering there's so few tool, used tools for sale, they're not definitely not going for near scrap price. Yep. Yeah, no, I mean they're they're still worth something to somebody. And people, I know what I have. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, that being said, the the next thing I buy is it's got to be a lathe. It's, yeah. it's I feel like I'm shooting myself in the foot pretty often not having one of those in the shop. Yeah, I uh, in 2015 I picked up a whole bunch of manual machines for so affordably and. I got a CNC or not a CNC. I got a manual mill and a manual lathe at the same time. And so I went from not really having either to having both. And it's kind of hard to say which one I thought was more cornerstone to frame building the way that I did it. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. I feel like when you're building one bike and then the next bike and then the next bike, maybe I would say that for me in my process, the, the mill was more useful because that's what I had used to notch tubing. But the lathe is like kind of, I don't know, it's more irreplaceable almost because you can you can hand file tubes. And when you're familiar with it, it's not even that miserable to hand file tubes. Uh, it's, it's a skill set you have to develop. But like the lathe does, I mean, just everything like and I haven't had a manual <laughs> lathe the last year to, since I bought my CNC lathe. And I was in such a tiny shop, I sold my manual lathe and I knew that one was going to hurt and I knew I was going to miss it. And now I'm just waiting for the right time to pick one up again because a CNC lathe is just not practical for the same kinds of things. It's just not, not as handy. It's, it's, it's good for production and that's about it. But anyway, yeah, it's, yeah. it's hard to imagine building bikes uh, the way that I would ever want to without having one around. It's, it's so valuable, so useful. And like, not even just for precision things, but for like dirty tasks and like you want to polish the mill scale <laughs> yeah. off of the tube or you just want to, 
you know, rough bore something so you can fit it around. The fit doesn't even matter or just so many things. Yeah. Yeah. Like I'm really feeling it like even like little things like building racks, like building little internal sleeves to join two racks together. It's like, I'm sitting there with my little Dynafile knockoff, just taking the outside off of the tube just so I can slide it into another kind of thing. Oh, I can't buy the right size tube. And yeah, like little things like that. It's like, you know, I could throw it on a lathe, have it done quick and dirty. Yeah. I would use my lathe for, I remember a really good example of like things that you wouldn't think of, but I had bought, I wanted uh, for my TIG welding rod, I wanted to have these, you know, the three foot long lengths of it. I wanted to fit them inside of PVC tubes. I think it was probably three quarter inch trade size PVC. And I had a cap that was like PVC glued on the one end. And then it was just kind of slipped over and you could pull it on and off had a slip fit on the other end. And that cap, for whatever reason, I don't know that I don't use PVC that often, but it wouldn't, it just didn't fit very good. Like it was too tight. And so I like was wrestling with them for like a, you know, day or two. And finally I said, this is silly. And I just took all like 10 pieces and I put them on my lathe and I bored them out and then they fit great. And there's nothing precision (laughs) about that. I guess you could kind of do that with like a Dremel tool or something, but it, it's just like, uh, yeah, I, I feel like I use that lathe half as much for, silly stuff like that you know like uh when you when you're trying to build something and you have the wrong length fastener and you got to turn it down or uh one thing that's really useful with a manual lathe is when you have a tube like like head tube stock uh you know and and you just want to cut it to length but you want to cut it kind of square well a lathe works really well for that if you can pass the head tube through your spindle bore especially you can just cut it to length and then while it's spinning you can use a hand file or some sandpaper and just kind of, you know, take the edge off of it. And it, it produces a square cut very quickly. It's amazing. You know, it's, it's excellent for that. There's just so many little things like that. Yeah. 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 And then even like little things like, uh, you know, taking the Paragon head tube and making it look different from the yes. other Paragon head yep. tubes. Yep. Yeah. Super quick, super easy on a lathe. Yeah, it is. And uh, yeah, yeah, well, I hope you can find a sick deal on one of those real soon. <laughs> yeah yeah there was uh somebody i was talking to a frame builder out west and they were they were talking about like loading up the the shop truck and just driving like 20 hours to this industrial reseller in the midwest in ohio just to like pick up a truckload of machines and drive it was uh, somebody at moots i think was talking about i don't know if they ever did that but to me it sounded absolutely crazy but then again you know there's just not a whole lot of old machines in in steamboat springs <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah they probably have all of them yeah yeah no they probably do so all right well thanks so much for being a guest on the show uh, i really appreciate it and i can't wait to share this interview with everybody else uh let's talk soon yeah awesome thank you yeah talk soon